Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to This is Revolution Podcast. And I want to say thank you to all of you that have been listening to the intro song by my band, Bitter Lake, Lula Livre. Um, I, I recently looked at the numbers on that song, and I, I didn't have it on Spotify for years, for four, went on... Yeah, four years I didn't have it on Spotify, and for the longest time, the only way you could hear it is if you had got the you were in Brazil and you got the CD that we sold in Brazil that we put that song on, and now it's on Spotify and you guys are listening to it and I'm pretty stoked. We never really gave that much of a damn about our Spotify, but now that you guys are listening to those songs, I went back and put. A bunch of, of older recordings on there and thank you guys so much for checking all that stuff out if you are new to the channel welcome glad to have you here if you like what we're doing please hit like and subscribe it's a passive gesture that goes a long way if you are a returning listener glad to have you back also I'm not gonna waste a lot of time because I'm very excited about our guest today I I discovered this young man um, total randomly. I was telling him this offline. I was waiting to upload a clip that I had cut. And as I was waiting, you know, you uploaded on YouTube, um, his video popped up. I was like, who is this fucking dude? Why aren't we friends? And he's not the easiest person to get a hold of. I, I was such a fan. I signed on to a Substack. So wherever you are listening or watching to this show, there is a link in the description to Josh's Substack. Uh, so young people be, uh, becoming radicalized politically on the internet. Excuse me. Is it a bad thing? What happens when neoliberal brand identity and politics mesh to form how people see the world how much is shit posting and how much is serious our guest is an artist and internet culture researcher based in new york joshua writes about gen z online political subcultures in 2018 he published politogram and the post left sorry josh i don't have my glasses on so don't judge me for pausing right there i'm old as we said earlier <laughs> And last time I wore glasses, someone was complaining about my reflection of the lights. I can't please everyone. I do have to please that one person that made that comment, though. Um, since 2020, Joshua has been writing, podcasting, and live streaming as a way to crowdfund research and explore primary sources. Josh is one of these really cool people that when he does his research, he actually does interviews. Did he do 200 like Vincent Bevins? That's the million dollar question. Josh goes, I can't do 200 for free, Jason. I will need funding. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome Joshua Citrelia. Did I say that right? Uh, uh, close, close enough. Citrella, but uh, Citrella. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No, no. Thank you, Jason, for having me. Um, I should say I, I'm a fan of the show, and I've I've seen your stuff before. We have uh, a bunch of mutual friends in common. Catherine Liu was on my podcast uh, a few months back, and Douglas Lane back in the day. So, 
Yeah, um, I'm excited to be here. And uh, it's always fun to do these things where uh, I get called in as a expert about the stupidest thing in the world. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, hopefully we'll we'll make it interesting. And uh, yeah, it's great to see the, the live chat as well. So the, uh, the, li the live chat, I'm looking, I'm trying to, to not pay too much attention. That is my New Year's resolution is to not pay too much attention to the corner of my eye. Um, it can be distracting. Uh, I said it offline. I want to say it again online. I really like what you're doing. I think it's important to document culture. Um, and thank you. Internet culture is something that I think we sometimes make fun of or we're really dismissive of it. We have a flattening of it. It's all this or that. And I don't think it's that simple. I do think we're in an inter interesting moment for Gen Z and was it Gen Alpha? Um, people that have literally grown up with devices in their hands. Um, we've talked about this on the sports show that we do all the time, how even young athletes now only see themselves as brand. Um, and we can't look at these political subcultures without trying to to grasp what's going on. Um, what made you want to start doing this thankless job? And what has the reception been like in uh, independent and mainstream media? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, I think probably, as you said, um, there's just not a lot of people doing this work. In 2018, I published a, a book. It's, you know, a, a kind of congratulatory to call it a book. It's really a, a very long essay. And this was a ethnography of a mimetic subculture uh, at that time, mostly people who were 12 to 17 years old, mm -hmm. people who were on the left, either being, you know, uh, all, you know, different strains of uh, ideological tendencies, whatever you have, your your tankies, you have your anarchists, you've got, you know, everybody up, down and sideways. And uh, over the course of a few years, you know, this is, I started doing this research in like, uh, you know, 2015, 16, I watched them evolve into a very different type of political worldview. So at the end of this, you're looking at um, people who are self-described anarcho-primitivists, Luddites, <laughs> anti-civilization, civilization critique, um, cyber nihilism. Some of these things are like really, really niche and granular. So uh, yeah, I mean, I thought that this was an incredibly important story. Um, I wrote about it from the perspective of someone who had been studying studying internet subcultures. Um, you know, my peer group of what was broadly called the post-internet art world, um, you know, we came up on social media and we saw a lot of strange uh, emergent behavior, you would call it, on Tumblr. And we had genres such as C-punk, uh, which you may recognize from the world of music, okay. uh, Witch House, um, Health Goth was another one. I'm sorry. And... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I should probably. I, I oh, can hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We have we have about an hour for the main show, and <laughs> and I started on time. That being said, you're not allowed to shit out all these genres of music, and not give me. I will say this, and I've said this in the champagne room, and I've said this in the main show. I definitely said this at the live show for the book launch because the bass player for Bitter Lake is your age. And mm -hmm. when we would practice, mm -hmm. he would say things like you're saying to us, and we would look at him 
like he had a horn growing out of his forehead. <laughs> like, what the fuck did you just say that is? Yeah, so, yeah, right. What is a witch house? <laughs> what is, uh, explain well, what these are. Give me some names. I think it was um, Chino Moreno is, is the uh, singer from Deftones. I think yes, he had is. a witch house project like 10, 10, 15 years ago, maybe. Teen so, Sleep? I, I forget what it was or, called. Or it crosses. Was a, crosses? It might have been that. It might have been that. Yeah. And that's called what now? Well, it was. So this this is where it gets really interesting from my perspective, because <laughs> okay. you're looking at a name. You're oh. looking at a label. That's a genre. That's a kind of like emergent uh, grassroots cultural happening on the Internet. Um, and then there's not like a proper kind of canon or even like a clear sound that's attached mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. So. The most famous of these examples was something that this is in, you know, the era, let's say like 2012, there was something that was called C-Punk and uh, C-Punk, C-Punk, S-E-A, like the Oh, you're being fucking serious, like the C. No, yeah, yeah. Like the C. Like the C. So this is the euphemism for crust punk. Hold, hold, Josh. No, no, no. (laughs) You're not allowed to come on here. And, And I will, let me give you some fucking credibility right now before we start doing the show i'm playing uh old thursday and you know i can't play that music now because they'll pull the stream down and josh goes oh that's fits because i used to be in a screamo band and that, then so you guys <laughs> indeed, know indeed. all the heart emojis are flying out of my head because i'm like me and this dude are about to have a fun talk and then he all of a sudden comes on here and he shits out c-punk <laughs> duder duder what is is that that sea shanty shit? It was uh well it didn't have a sound in the beginning. It um it was a style, it was an okay. aesthetic as they call it. It was basically a, a the collision of different hashtags on Tumblr that had a visual aesthetic attached to it that would be lots of like starfish and rainbows and like water ocean textures and the aesthetic the hashtag became so popular that people then started to produce music to fit the genre. Uh, so think of like young, you know, bootstrapping, uh, creative entrepreneurs, the uh, kids who are like trying to get their foot into the music industry. Mm-hmm. They see this thing that's like kind of going soft viral in the way that things went viral on, on Tumblr. And uh, they're like, okay, well, I'm going to be now a C-punk musician and I'm hmm. going to make music to fit this style of an emergent behavior that just happened through weird stuff and, and people making posts on the internet. So uh, that's to connect all these things back around. I always use that example because I think a lot of what we're seeing when we talk about these ultra niche political ideologies, there's a very similar type of behavior uh, where there's a kind of collision of hashtags and terminology and people string together like, you know, paleo conservative, Islamo minarchist or whatever. uh, And then they kind of retrofit an ideology on top of it. So having that first layer of like understanding how the attention economy works and the one-upsmanship of the internet mm-hmm. and then putting the political analysis on top of it uh a lot of people mistake one for the other so uh you know putting your your things in the right baskets is very important in this case spastic hardcore after dillinger escape plan hits right everybody wants very to similar to signature. so that's all that's genres, what we're yeah. seeing right now right okay so if those guys are in some we'll go into crazier time signature and we'll have a longer name. <laughs> I listened to Dillinger. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was in my wheelhouse. 
for sure. Is is that is that so that's kind of what we're seeing with what you're explaining like okay this is a thing that's kind of working and hitting. Is that the way people are seeing their political ideologies as well? Uh I don't want to be just a regular socialist because that's kind of hot. I want to be a uh what is it called? Uh pa- patriotic socialist. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those guys are great. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I and, and I know that's kind of something that's that's no longer as in vogue as it was maybe a year and a half ago. But um you go in depth into some interesting political ideologies that people are putting together on the internet. How are people putting some of these together? Well, it's uh, it's reached such proportions that a few years ago, there was a uh, JavaScript that would randomly generate political ideologies by pairing together prefixes and suffixes, uh, you know, where you could be like a, a techno anarchist, uh, you know, whatever, paleo accelerationist and, and so on. So, yeah, a lot of this stuff is kind of dismissible. It's very similar to the genre play that young people uh get get interested in they put a band of a poster they put a poster of a band on their wall and so on um and i noticed a kind of similar trend around a lot of the young people that i was following that instead of having posters of bands they would collect flags of different political ideologies so there's a component that is being played out on the internet mm-hmm. of niche personal branding and um, identity play, similar to how people would experiment with musical genres. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if if that band that you were into has now gotten like too soft, or they introduce synthesizers <laughs> or something. That you, I'm trying to give an a no, example because uh, yeah, yeah. those were big riffs in like certain uh, yeah. certain genres. Um, you know, then you have to get a little bit more hardcore, and the mm-hmm. direction that you move. You know, maybe you become a little bit more socially conservative or a little bit more anarchistic or, you know, all sorts of different gradations. Uh, and so there's this elaborate system of like kind of like an MMORPG role playing game, uh, which is also a big part of my background as well. And um, I've been kind of collecting the flags that people make as they uh, browse through these spaces and kind of invent new political ideologies. Can you explain what an um, MMORPG role-playing game is? Oh, sure, like, sure. I'm sorry, because yeah. there are some people that, look, I am old and I do like <laughs> having old people watch and I want them to keep watching. So. Well, um, I was uh, I was globally ranked in the top 1% of PvP in World of Warcraft, so I have a, a lot of experience. Thank you. I appreciate the... <laughs> I always think that I was I was better at that than I actually was at art. You know, I should have uh, I should have stuck with that. But um, MMORPG stands for Massive Multiplayer Online Role Playing Game. So this is something where you invent a character. You usually have a character selection screen where you choose either the warrior or the rogue or the mage or you know whatever that all, all sorts of different characters. Um, I find those things to be very important. You know, in the Dungeons and Dragons context, Mm -hmm. uh, which is very popular among many of the people I've interviewed, Um, the paladin, for example, necessarily needs to be lawful good. Uh, and I find those those questions actually have, you know, really significant political implications. You know, keep in mind, we're talking about what does this mean in the political imagination of a 15 year old? So uh, identifying as lawful good, meaning that you might be in the modern day analogy, a police officer has you know, pretty significant connotations about the stories that we grow up with. And, um, you know, I, I would say um, I think the most key example for me is the the idea of um, chaotic good, that sometimes there is a, 
uh, a law of the land that is uh, unjust and should be perhaps challenged or overthrown. And that is the morally right thing to do. So those are, you know, very silly things, but um, I take silly things seriously. And that has kind of been uh, my project over the last few years of interviewing. You know, it started ages 12 to 17. Um, in the second book that I published, uh, the ages were roughly 15 to 18. Um, those were a few years apart. So I attribute that to most of this demographic that got hyper, hyper politicized beginning in 2016. And we're now seeing, mm -hmm. you know, kind of cascading waves of that. Um, really trending with the mass adoption curve of social media and um, the kind of 24-7 reality game of, of politics, uh, the people now are proportionally older. And so some of these people who I have followed and interviewed since they were 13 are now in college. Some of them play in bands themselves, oh. one of which is actually rather successful that I'm going oh. to see in February. Oh. Um, yeah, it's, it's really cool. And then he met just uh, totally coincidentally, I won't use names or anything, mm -hmm. um, at their, you know, kind of anarchist punk show, met some of my anarchist friends who I just happen to know from my own life. So, you know, the internet world and the real world of politics are finding unusual, unpredictable ways to link up. Well, let me know if, if the if the cat comes down to uh, Southern California. I don't know, you know, touring is a, is a motherfucker, so. It's hard to get out of, you know, crossing Texas is the line of success. You, could, if you might, uh, well, you might have an interesting conversation uh, with that crew because they're um, against the Industrial Revolution. They're, uh, mm -hmm. you know, anarcho-primitivists. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Vegan, straight edge uh, oh. anarchist types. So it, a little bit different, you know, they're, they're the kind of people who are like anti, um, you know, union in some ways. They're They're like you know, uh, insurrection, overthrow civilization, um, some <laughs> important differences, uh, uh, in my opinion. I, I, again, you tour long enough, you, you'll crash at everybody's house. <laughs> you'll even crash at the anarcho primitive fucking castle filled with cats. <laughs> <laughs> I've done, I've done a few of those myself. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Man, how many cats do you have? And why does it smell like pee in here? Um, there was an interview subject that you talk about in your presentation, and I thought it was important to bring up the particular person you talked about. And I think you interviewed 20 people, right? For that book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And why I thought it was interesting is because, again, we try to have a flattening of, of everybody's reality in these internet subcultures because a lot of us live the life not online and i think generational conversations are the worst conversations you can have because they eliminate class we just assume every right. baby boomer right. you know got a free house and and a healthcare job and a pension and we assume you know every person in my generation is a is a fuck off could be some truth to that but um, the way you described this person, I believe Zoomer is the yeah, name, yeah. name that he you gave the guy, the person. Um, you told a very humanizing story of someone's online uh, political radicalization. Would it be too much to ask for you to kind of uh, tell that story again? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, you know, I've encountered more than a few of these in the past few years and um you know it's always it's always uh 
it it strikes you uh, when you learn, you know, who are the people behind the accounts, what are the the realities, their lived experience, um, and it it kind of changes the way that you see their their silly posts. So um, this is this is also published as a, a podcast that I um, I published maybe I think it was in 2020 or 2021 um, a few years ago, and I had come across an account that was being dogpiled, um, meaning it was being uh, heavily criticized and mm -hmm. people were kind of ganging up on this person for good reason at that time, um, but they were being dogpiled by both the, the right and the left. So this person was really getting a, a lot of criticism from a lot of online people and it was a relatively small account. I don't remember how much, under a thousand followers, a few hundred. Um, and this person, uh, although they were of South Asian descent and they were uh, queer, uh, as they identified in their bio. Um, Zoomer uses he, him pronouns. In, in the past, it was uh, they, them. But uh, Zoomer had posted uh, what you might recognize as the Black Sun, which is a you know very clear white supremacist symbol. Mm -hmm. um, and you know Zoomer was describing this as being a, a third positionist <laughs> uh, type of, you know, ideology that somehow, you know, he was beyond both the right and the left and he represented some type of anti-imperialist national liberation. Um, it's, it's a bit fuzzy. Uh, he was a big fan of Caleb Maupin. You know, there's these kind of weird overlaps with people who are coming from the left and then get into this far right stuff. So, uh, I kind of waited for the stuff to cool down because, um, I have always, uh, you know, the kind of ethical parameters surrounding my work is that uh, everything is really thoroughly anonymized. Um, no one I've ever worked with or interviewed has been able to be identified or harassed online. And I try to not participate in those things. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I interviewed Zoomer and I wanted to find out, you know, what he meant by posting that symbol and um, how he viewed the world and all of these things. So, um, yeah, chat is saying, uh, mop and <laughs> oy vey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> agree. Hard agree. Yeah. So, uh, zoomer, um, zoomer, I'll give you a kind of a, a brief version of the story, but, uh, mm -hmm. zoomer was from a upper middle class affluent background, um, you know, hardworking first generation immigrant parents, uh, they're, they have like a luxurious house as he describes, um, I, I kind of got the feeling that this might have been like one of those pre-2008, like big McMansion type things. Um, but that's uh, over the course of his story, his life experience, um, his parents get divorced and he is now um, living with his mother. The father has gone bankrupt, so there's no child support. Uh, and he's in a, a very different situation <clears throat> Um, pretty much immediately, where he is, instead of living this affluent upper middle class life, he is uh, living um, with a, you know, single working class mother with children, which is, you know, in our society, unfortunately, in the United States, uh, the single greatest predictor of poverty. So uh, previous to that, Zoomer had been interested in politics. He was devouring all sorts of, you know, conservative content. He was the kind of kid who you know, he got into politics through Gamergate, which if people remember that was a, uh, um, a crisis in the ethics of gaming journalism. I shouldn't should post on it. We'll put it in Gamergate. And later on in the conversation, I will ask you to give a, because you don't want my. Sure, sure. 
there's a, I mean, there's there's a kind of huge explosion of far right uh, uh, organization online that happens around that time. So, you know, he's I think 13 at that time, maybe a little bit younger. Um, he gets into you know middle school age politics, which is dunking on the libs, Ben Shapiro type stuff. He gets into Stephen Crowder. You know, these are all really big personalities on YouTube. He's um, you know a libertarian leaning in some instances, and he he starts to go through this political evolution. Because at the time, he's encountering it kind of on both fronts, right? Because he's from a Muslim background, right? His parents are practicing. He's not especially religious. But uh, he's encountering a lot of Islamophobia through from some of his favorite content creators, like Stephen Crowder, as he says in the podcast. Uh, and then also his kind of more libertarian-leaning ideas are really being challenged because uh, he could really use a social safety net because he's experiencing poverty for the first time in his life. So um, he starts to undergo this political evolution and he gets into Joseph Proudhon, I think, you know, so, you know, think of this now spatially. We're kind of plotting a belief system in motion where somebody who is into right wing ideas, say conservatism to libertarianism to uh, uh, anarchism or, you know, maybe a market anarchist society. And then from Proudhon, he gets into Marx um, and he kind of goes through this different rabbit hole, to use the phrase, and he comes out pretty firmly on the the other side. Um, and he is now, you know, devouring Marx and devouring left wing content and uh, getting politicized in the other direction. But uh, unfortunately, his family circumstances grow worse in that instance. So Zoomer has uh, at least one sibling, as he describes in the podcast. Um, the family is now housing insecure. They end up living out of their car for a period of time. They're going to soup kitchens, food pantries, and, and so on. This is um, a really grueling story and kind of um, certainly changed my demeanor uh, during the course of the conversation, you know, that I was expecting to see, you know, a young person who was not really firm in their ideas and had posted a dumb thing online and would probably like embarrass themselves on the podcast or something. And um, it really changed, you know, how I started to think of uh, the, the stuff that he posted and, and who he was. So um, he's now faced with this kind of other weird uh, uh, problem, which is, you know, so often on the online left, which is that people say all sorts of wonderful things and uh, they promise the world. And then, you know, who does he meet? at these food pantries and soup kitchens. He meets the conservative religious people that he was brought up with. And um, the, the thing that finally uh, brings an end um, to the, the hardship that they're experiencing is that their local mosque has a fundraiser uh, that helps to rehouse the family. And um, you know the, the mom is working, the kids are back in school. And uh, you know, fast forward a few years, Zoomer is now working in a, a factory. I believe this is Amazon in this case, uh, but he does not identify that on the podcast. I'm I'm intuiting that because the um, the uh, the arch villain in his Dungeons and Dragons game is named Jeff Bezos. So I'm just kind of putting these things together. But um, you kind of have everything happening here at once, which is like someone who is posting in a way to antagonize people because they're mad at the world. They are, I want to say, legitimately interested in political theory because he's certainly consuming a lot of content and reading a lot, uh, but also very impressionable. And so um, an artwork that I made, this is actually going to be included in an exhibition at uh, KW Institute of Contemporary Art in Berlin 
uh, next nope. month in February. Nope. Uh, it's a, uh, I'll just visually describe it, but it's the Gadsden snake that you'll recognize from yeah. the libertarian flag. Mm -hmm. um, and instead it's got three heads uh, and the text on the bottom says, don't tread on us. Um, and it's written in Arabic moon and sun letters uh, instead of the, the English version. So yeah, that's um, the kind of fast forward version of uh, Zoomer's story. And it really humanized um, a lot of the ridiculous nonsense that I see online. And um, it made me think that there are people who are, you know, struggling with not just like big theoretical intellectual conversations, but um, they're actually just materially struggling and they're grasping for a type of worldview that makes sense in the world around them. Um, yeah. And so I, from that, you know, I've, I've certainly gotten a lot of insights for internet culture, but also just uh, broadly politics on the left. And um, yeah, I, I want to say that like across all of my interviews, um, every time that I, I reach out to somebody, the probability of getting some kind of really unusual story from the people behind the accounts is actually relatively high, you know? And if you just look at the amount of unnecessary suffering and economic hardship in the country, it's like that part of it kind of makes sense. So, you know, what they post, I, I don't endorse, but uh, I think there's a real opportunity for left-wing political education and, and using these things towards more progressive ends. So. But that, that's where that's where the whole thing really gets interesting to me because you have a young person here that's getting radicalized by real life. Most of us mm -hmm. that are watching yeah. the show that are of a certain age, right? We've all gotten radicalized by real life. Um, maybe we got into politics or left politics from, from music, but generally our life has changed the way we see the world. My co-host you know, people seem to only want to hear what they want to hear when he speaks. But, you know, it, it was losing things that really radicalized him and caused him to read different people <laughs> for when when economic times were, were good. So the young people and, and this is where it's really interesting to me, back to the whole living online. Um I got to be part of a generation where we got to say some horrible things in yearbooks, in real life to each other, um, and no one knows about it other than the people that shared those memories. And now these things that someone like Zoomer says online can have long-lasting effects. And I want to ask you this. Do you think that can shape the way you see the world kind of forever, especially if you get, you know, really badly banned. So for example, there was, you know, if you've watched the show before, so I lived in a, in a warehouse and I've told, I used to tell the story a lot back when we were doing the show in the warehouse, but there was a band of some young kids like 1920 playing like, more traditional rock, you know how there's kind of that punk movement, the, the Annihilation Time kind of bands that do that. And um, they were good. But one of the cats in the band, much like you're talking about right now, fell down the internet rabbit hole of Jordan mm. Peterson. <laughs> of course. yeah. yeah because yeah. we don't talk about, and there's a few things that I, I want to touch on with Zoomer's story that it really hit home for me. We don't talk about who talks to people that feel that no one's there listening to them. 
and the Jordan Petersons of the world at a, at a certain time were really filling that void. We're not going to get into what's filling that void now, but he would come to me because he was like, you're the kind of a cool, smart dude. And he would start yelling at me about this Jordan Peterson stuff. And I would sit there and let him talk. And then I'd give a perspective on why I thought mm. it was bullshit. Mm. Right. And then he'd chill, you know, all right, all right, man, you got a point. And he'd go back to, you know, doing his thing. And so they went and played a show at a place that's very famous, very small. If you're not in the punk world, you might not have heard of it, but it's called the Gilman in Berkeley, California. And the Gilman is a venue that has very specific rules. You cannot be racist, homophobic, sexist, none of the ists and the icks you can be. And he had a Proud Boy shirt on. And this is... 2019 or so this is before this is way before the 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 shelter in place this has got to be like 2019 even 2018 and the kid wears this shirt and the people at the venue go what are you doing with that shirt on dude you got to take it off they're racist is what they told him and he's like i'm not racist and in his mind he's not he talks to me right right he 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 practices in west oakland why how could he he and he's never says the n-word but he's wearing this proud boy shirt so they didn't let him play they wouldn't let him play Mm. then some people that were affiliated with the club found out who he was and they doxed him Mm. the kid lost his job he ended up living on the street he was living across the street in the homeless encampment for a while i don't know what happened to that kid jesus yeah. yeah, but that knee-jerk reaction to a shirt changed his life forever. Right. And there's another thing about Zoomer's story that's really interesting to me, and is that in the spaces that people assume are left spaces, the nonprofit world and services, that's not where leftists are. <laughs> I don't know who people think work in these spaces. At best, you'll get some liberals. But the amount of conservatives that work in that world, you would be surprised. Because I think we assume, kind of back to your analogy about being a good person in the game. This is where the good people go. Not right. the good people right. ideology. Yeah, yeah. I want to go work in the good people field. Mm-hmm. No one wants to work at a food pantry. I've never met too many people like, man, if I could just work at the food pantry. Nobody. Nobody. You end up at the food pantry. You end up working for a nonprofit. Right? You end up working at these places. This isn't where you, you know, I'm going to school one day. I could work in a homeless shelter. <laughs> it, it would be nice if that were the case, but that's not the case. And I do think it's important to hit on that point that the people, because when you tell your, your story in the, in the presentation, you go, this kid is hearing all these stories about this idea of mutual aid. Right, right. And I feel, and I don't know if you feel the same way, 
the way that mutual aid is discussed, especially in online milieu, is charity. It's not it's not a real mutual aid. Yeah, I should I should say that I'm uh, I'm pretty skeptical of the the whole thing uh, mm-hmm. from from my perspective. And mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of times people are when they talk about mutual aid um, there, it, it's kind of like a, a Band-Aid solution for stuff that is like really structural problems mm-hmm. that needs to be addressed at, at the state level, if I'm uh, being honest. So, um, yeah, I think there's uh, what I find is particularly effective about that anecdote for my audience is that um, I know there's a lot of people who are of a kind of like liberal persuasion that read my stuff. And I think when they think of the food pantry and the, the you know, the, the soup kitchen type of world, they probably think of a time where they volunteered for a few weekends <laughs> at college or something. Yeah. Thanks. You know, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a kind of like, you know, do gooder um, type of thing where it's like, oh, where like I, I did my thing for the weekend and now it's now it's over. Um, and so, yeah, that becomes a kind of like effective, uh, effective wedge. Um, but maybe it, it, if I could uh, address the story that you shared about that that young man, mm-hmm. um, it brings it brings so much to mind because I know we have this um, a, a mutual acquaintance, uh, Douglas Lane. Yeah. The way that I first came across his stuff is that I was looking into young people who were you know similar to your friend getting into this Jordan Peterson type stuff, um, and what I thought was so revelatory and important that Doug was doing was he was making videos directly replying to the Peterson videos. And so he was, you know, you can plot this thing diagrammatically. People who would watch a Jordan Jordan Peterson video would then get recommended Douglas Lane, where he would talk about the exact same topics. He would give you a different interpretation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we've we've kind of talked about this uh, in depth in the last few years. But if people have not encountered this before, there's uh, this funnel analogy, which is so frequently used, which is that you set um, a wide net at the top where you have, you know, to make the math easy, there's a a hundred thousand people who receive the message. Maybe they they see the video pop up, and then there's a smaller group that clicks into it. Of the smaller group that clicks into it, there's some people who you know really uh, sympathize or or identify with the stuff that's being talked about. Some of those people will become subscribers. Some of them will have their mind changed, and uh, some of them at the very end of this pipeline will answer a call to action, either being you know canvassing or voting in a certain way, or maybe even paper membership to an organization. And, um, you know, I really credit Doug's work in that space in the early years. I'm talking about this is like, you know, 2017 when I first started writing about this stuff. It was like, these belief systems are in motion. These young people are, they're, they're moving. They're not, no one is just born with a political ideology. This is stuff you learn and pick up along the way. Um, and if they can be moved to the right, then they can be moved to the yeah. left. That that exists. And, you know, there's a, a real problem on today's left of like, um, you know, uh, educate yourself. I don't owe you an explanation type of stuff, which <laughs> is so incredibly counterproductive and also, you know, reveals a kind of uh, inability to rigorously argument your points. Uh, we start to sound like libertarians or some shit uh, when we go down these routes. But uh, yeah. Catherine Liu said it on my podcast, and I think she's right that like being able to engage in conversation and persuade people. Like this is how we find the truth, you know, and so that's just that's what I really admired about um, Doug's stuff. And um, but to, to sorry to bring this anecdote to a conclusion, mm-hmm. um, my view at the time, um, and I haven't really 
seriously thought about Peterson in the last few years, uh, <laughs> That's whatever fair. he's doing now with this crazy suits and shit. Mm. But at that time, my opinion of Peterson was that he was um, what you what some researchers would refer to as a holding pattern, meaning that take this funnel analogy and people are moving from, you know, moderate conservatism to like some really radical stuff at the bottom of the funnel. They would get caught in like somewhere in the middle in this loop around Jordan Peterson. So his presence, because he gave you, you know, the red pill ideology where through exercise and cleaning your room and self-improvement, you you could get you could improve your current state. Maybe that's just how you feel, your fitness or whatever. But he didn't give you the black pill ideology was that there's no solution. We need to have, you know, radical violence and extremism or whatever. So in in that, uh, you know, analogy. Peterson is a positive force in this ecosystem and that people were making response videos like Doug was doing. That was great. Now, I don't know if this directly relates to your friend. He's wearing the Proud Boys uniform. I don't know the rest of his background, but, um, you know, it, it sounds like an awful, awful situation. But, you know, uh, of all the things you could be into, Peterson was definitely not the worst at that time. You know, from what I gathered from the from the kid, he was a kid, man. Uh, he wasn't from California. Him and his friends came to California to figure the music thing out. They didn't go to L.A. for whatever reason. They came to the Bay, which I think is not where you figure the music thing out, just because we don't have uh, industry like you yeah. have in Los Angeles. So so ready to go for you. Meaning, if your band doesn't work out, you can be a session player. You could be a touring person. That's a lot harder to do in the Bay Area because we just don't have that that level of industry there. And they were a good little band and and I I don't know too many people in their early 20s and late teens that always say the right thing. Right. Right. And he didn't seem to me as someone that was going to espouse these Peterson theories for the rest of his life. He was just trying to figure something out. This is popular. It sounded cool at the time. Yeah. I think Proud Boys thing, I think, sounded edgy at the time because of uh, its affiliation with things like Vice because of uh, what's the guy that started it? Gavin. Gavin yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people forget Vice was a tastemaker magazine. Yeah. In the early aughts. Yeah. Um, so. I can see how I'm not trying to justify anything by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but the, the knee jerk reaction to see this person as a, as an enemy and a, and a fascist and this person had to be destroyed at all costs. I'm like, he's in a worse financial situation than you that one, one series of posts can change his whole life. So he's probably not, you know, the the fascist and waiting that you want him to be he could just be a misguided person well i i guarantee you that guy's a conservative for life now um that's <laughs> definitely that's I, I mean there's like endless studies about yeah. this it's I, and I was like a forgive me if i'm a broken record but like i've just been having to say this since like uh when, when i first started publishing on these topics for you know years now um but uh deplatforming often makes things worse you know so uh that guy who was receptive to the things that you were saying might have appreciated a few douglas lane videos at the yeah. time um mm -hmm. i would have asked you know that the venue not to step out of place here but i would ask him to change his shirt allow them to play 
and then uh, maybe I, I believe to somebody who knew better about the topics. Uh, but the sad thing is, I believe they did ask him to, and he wouldn't. And he wouldn't do it. Oh, you know, it's, yeah, then yeah. it's back to the whole like you're playing like the most punk rock thing ever, and then that gets into the whole punk rock ideology of "fuck you, I won't do what you tell me." Yeah. And, well, that was uh, oof, you're talking Gavin about McGinnis said right? That, yeah, right? That, that's a headbutting. Rock is the new conservatism. Yeah, and 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 that's really, in my opinion, what you get. You know, we Benson Bevins mentions that in the conclusion of his of his latest book, "If We Burn," that you know, ultimately, a lot of this stuff came out of out of punk, and that's pretty individualistic um, uh, ideology. Well, if I, if I can share a story about um, there's an, another young person that I interviewed. Um, I think the name that we gave them was C, just the, the letter C, like Charles in the in the podcast. But um, uh, C was super into conservative politics. This is, you know, someone who's much younger. This is, I think, maybe like, let's say, ages um 13 to 16. And I think I think I interviewed him when he was 16. Um, so just, just as an example, there's one example, but there's kind of innumerable cases of this. Uh, you know, he was incredibly into uh, YouTube PragerU videos, uh, conservative oh. media on YouTube, uh, real garbage to fill your brain with, uh, total nonsense. And um, his family wouldn't allow him to have social media. So he just spent all day owning the libs in, in the comment sections. That was his only type of social media. Uh, and so he had a sibling who was um, a... Uh, I think a narco-communist maybe was their their preferred ideology. Mm -hmm. And um, although they butted heads over tons and tons of stuff, uh, they were always in dialogue with each other. And so over the course of three years, you know, this is like um, being in the common threads of PragerU videos, getting into people who are kind of further and further towards the the right. Um, Paul Joseph Watson was, I think, his like main oof, influence, oof. The, the previous InfoWars host guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, he kind of has this this period where I think he he took a trip to it was a school trip to Europe and encountered um, migrants who were selling kind of souvenirs on the street. And um, the, the story he relayed was something like just th there was I, I forget exactly. He didn't tell me uh, exactly when the the trip was, but I guess there must have been some, um, you know, sizable migration to wherever they traveled. I don't know where they were in, in Europe, but um, he's just seeing the kind of the suffering and the amount of work and the hardship that these people are experiencing and uh, causes him to start reconsidering his views. He's also, you know, plucked out of his like YouTube ecosystem for uh, a, a week at a time or whatever. Um, and over the course of a few years, he really radically shifts where I asked him at the beginning of the podcast, you know, what are your influences today? What's your ideology? Um, and for, for actually, uh, for the influences, I expect him to say like, oh, you know, like, uh, uh Marx and I'm reading, uh, you know, Lenin or whatever. And he's like, you know, uh, thought slime is really big, Zanderhal, <laughs> ContraPoints, you know, <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> I expected the theorists and instead I got the YouTubers, um, but it was awesome. primarily, he attributes this to the benevolent influence of his uh, sibling, his older sibling, who, although he totally disagreed on everything they said, they had arguments over the dinner table, over the course of three years, pulled this person towards their beliefs, and um, yeah, so engagement is necessary, and engaging in sometimes the most unpopular stuff is absolutely necessary because otherwise you cede people to your political opponents. So creating 
taboos about what you can't say, about what topics you can't, uh, uh, you know, make content about or whatever. Um, you know, all of those things just uh, th they end up losing people instead of building the like overwhelming broad coalition that would achieve some of the things that I would like to see in the United States. So, um, you know, that's this we're talking about stuff from the realm of content and um, political ideation among young people, but they have, uh, you know, uh, analogies that map onto all sorts of politicized adults and how we conduct ourselves as well. Do you do you think uh, a lot of these kids are are pretty serious about uh, the way they view the world? As you started talking to these guys at around 13 years old, and as you said, as we started the show, that a lot of them are in college now, so that means they're voting age. I don't know how often you're keeping in contact uh, with with these cats, but are they talking to you about voting? How do they feel? about uh this upcoming election is this the first time some of them are going to be able to vote <laughs> um if so are they looking at it as kind of an end-all be-all to their political activity talk to me goose yeah the uh the voting question is um i in the interviews i did a, a podcast series called my political journey which uh interviewed uh, a lot of those young people um, and I, I, I usually end it with the voting question because um, that's uh, it's just kind of an interesting metric. Um, mm -hmm. And usually people, you know, they're too young to vote and they'd say, even if I could, I, I wouldn't. Um, so, you know, a few examples of like, yeah, what does all consuming all this content mean? Right. Like, do people vote? Uh, yeah, probably not. Um, are they organized in their workplaces? Like in some cases, if they they do work, they can be organized. Um, some of them join um organizations there's uh, one in particular which is uh, maybe i won't I, I won't blow them up because i don't think it's their fault that they attracted all these shitposting teenagers but uh, <laughs> a really fringe communist organization that had um mostly people in their like 60s and 70s mm -hmm. uh that would host zoom meetings where people could you know join for free and um we're very, you know, pleasantly surprised, I guess, by uh, an influx of teenagers who are really enthusiastic about politics. Um, yeah, I, I actually on the live stream uh, a few weeks or months back, I read a uh, six month correspondence between these one of these communist groups and another um, about why they disagreed about issuing a joint statement against the war in Ukraine. Um, so really just in, incredibly in the weeds you know, um, like, you know, maybe thousands, possibly hundreds of readers, very niche organizations, um, but they do join it. They do read extensively. Um, some of the people on the right have, you know, gone on to military service. Some of them have joined the National Guard. Um, I've seen people, you know, get very involved in music, some of them very involved in in politics. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, there's a wide gamut of people I've talked to um, in, in regard to whether I'm in conversation with them now. Um, a lot of these early experiences are, are pretty traumatic. Um, these are, you know, extremist spaces where, you know, you can be in a discord where somebody's um, distributing PDFs of stuff that like could get you in trouble with like the the government, the, you know, really dangerous stuff that I won't mention on someone else's YouTube channel just to be courteous. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned it on mine so you can watch the lecture. But uh, that's not the kind of thing that people necessarily want to remember. Um, so the way that I leave it is that they can get in touch with me and my door is always open and some of them do. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't um, I don't try to contact them to like bring up bad memories of the past, you know. 
that's been I think that's the only ethical way to engage with it. I've uh, I've had some personal connections. Some of these people I know quite well at at this point, but um, you know a lot of them have just logged off, disappeared, gotten other hobbies. You know, and it's probably for the best. Good. I was gonna say good for them. Yeah. But if you can put yeah, your phone exactly. down, you know, if you can put your close your computer, or... good for you. I try to use social media for good. If you're not talking about ninja movies or hair metal <laughs> or toys from the 80s, I don't give a shit what you're saying. <laughs> Jason, how do you feel about, is it a ninja movie? Then I don't care. I'll do a show about it where I can actually give you some uh, expert that knows about the thing, but asking me about something random, ask me about ninjas, motherfucker. Okay. At the at the risk of uh, making you making you bored of uh, uh, social media, but um, I'm kind of curious, like, because I've talked to a few people about this, and um, sometimes they tell me that my vision of this stuff is like too optimistic. You know, that like, oh, this doesn't lead to anything. People just they devour all this content, and then they just you know have beefs in the common threads or whatever. Like, <laughs> where where are you in this threshold of optimism? Like, do do you think I mean, I think you implicitly must if you're doing yeah. you're doing a YouTube channel, you're doing what I think is very rigorous education. You know, I think Vincent Bevan's book, My Reading Group, is doing it right now. That's really Oof. important, urgent stuff to talk Oof. about. Is um, it? So you you must think that this is this is leading towards something. It has some kind of positive effect. How, <sighs> how positive, I guess, is the question. I had a friend tell me I will preface this by by saying this. I had a friend tell me, a very good friend who is a writer that comes on the show sometime, Bert Cooper. He said, Jay, no one is talking about culture. He said, there's no black guys talking about culture. He goes, there's uh, what's the light-skinned guy that we can't stand that talks about AAVE all the time. Oh, I can't think. McHorder. He goes, there's McHorder, but he goes, that's he's kind of the only guy. And he goes, and then there's, you know, fucking you. And he said, it, you know, we kind of laughed about it. Um, I think it's a great way to to engage with people. For me, the internet was a way to to stay connected with people that I saw on the road. Right, I spent mm -hmm. years traveling all over the place, and I made very, very uh, sincere connections with people. Some people that still watch this show to this day. Um, and the internet is a way for us to, to, to talk. And there's certain things on the net that I'm not the biggest fan of, especially when it comes to fighting, because it's not how real disagreements happen in the real world. And that kind of pisses me off because when you have a real legitimate disagreement and it, you can ask Ben Burgess, you know, he's a, he's a very quiet man and we hang out a significant amount and I am not. So people always want to ask, who are you? What do you do? And when I tell them, they're like, do you talk about politics? And I'm like, sure. Yeah. And then you see Ben like this, right? Like shit, you know, <laughs> where is he, he going to go with this? How, how serious is he going to get? Cause most people don't want to hear you say I'm a Marxist. I'm a this, this, you know, they're going to hear you say that and automatically turn off or assume you're some sort of Yahoo or whatever. And uh, having real conversations with people in real spaces, they're not as hostile as you think. Mm -hmm. um, online? Whole different amount of hostility people have online. 
it's very i'm not a very imposing figure either i'm not intimidating i'm 510 i'm probably about 180 pounds i'm i'm generally smiling all the time i'm not an intimidating individual so you know I don't scare people into not talking back to me is what I'm trying to say. But when in the online space, there's a lot of uh, implied yelling and definitely talking down to people. So I definitely stay away from that aspect of it to a certain uh, degree. And I try to look, look at it because I think it's going to have larger implications, mm. you know, over time. I do think the internet, was pretty powerful in getting certain people elected, right? I think the internet helped in even growing the the Bernie Sanders movement. I definitely mm-hmm. think it had a lot to do with getting AOC elected, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. I'm not saying this is like these are good things. I'm just saying this is for better or for worse. This is what you get from analysis. So we kind of have to understand what's happening in this moment of the influencer, there was a moment, and and the, and the, the internet's also a fickle a fickle lover, right? At one moment, remember when everybody loved Cornell West when he was like, "I'm going to be run for president." It was like Cornell West, our most viewed show of the year of our Lord, 2023, by a lot, was the interview that Pascal Robert did with Cornell West. That was our most watched show. I replayed that show. Nobody watched it. One of the comments on the replay was, remember when we all thought this was serious? (laughs) Wow. But that was the solution Mm -hmm. to Donald Trump and Joe Biden. It was going to be our celebrity. Right. It's going to be our guy that that uh, said the right things, but didn't never hold any political office. So. I think the internet's an interesting place, dude. I think it's a real fucking interesting place. Um, But we're still dealing with it because you have people, again, of my generation that can be very dismissive of the way we came up. And generational thought, I think, is the plague of any sort of real analysis we can even attempt to have at this moment. You know, just because I came up using telephones and VCRs and right. playing outside doesn't mean that my world is better than my 17 and 20 year old children that still you know, hang out outside, but they also play video games and, and grew up with social media profiles and things like that. Like, I don't think one is better than the other. It's just different. And let's talk about that difference and, you know, how we relate to the, the greater world. That's where I'm at with it. Well, the the generational thing is um, it's often bad analysis. I, I agree with that. Um, but there is some kind of um, a technological difference. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. there's something that happens, mm-hmm. you know, certain behaviors that get magnified at scale. And in the scale of the Internet, we're not talking about, you know, um, you know, your your band plays a show and you have one song that like it does like 30 percent better. and You're like, oh, that one was a real hit. Um, but you know, you, you post something to the internet and you're going to be known for like one viral post that is quantitatively larger than the totality of everything you have ever produced and (laughs) ever will produce. So, um, the, you know, the, the scale question becomes really, really, uh, important here. So 
you know, maybe to reference, um, you know, the, the Proud Boys and Gavin McGinnis, uh, again, you know, that's, I think, undeniably a, a real world organization that everyone would agree with. And uh, it started from Gavin McGinnis's podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that was one of the things that got me thinking about this question. And you asked me at the very beginning, um, you know, why I keep doing this thankless work. Uh, and part of it is because just nobody else is. Um, there certainly are you know, very well-funded, you know, uh, very rigorous, some of them very good researchers I'm friends with and admire um, who work in, you know, progressive think tanks and NGOs and and things like that. And, um, you know, some of those quantitative studies would just, you know, simply not be possible without extraordinary amounts of funding and and whatever. (laughs) Um, But then there's also severe limits to that, where I just, I don't see the kind of class perspective and class struggle perspective that is going to alleviate the material misery of these young people that I'm interviewing, um, and certainly not scale to the political crises of the 21st century. You know, so um, the yeah, the generational uh, analysis. Uh, throw that away. You need the historical analysis. Uh, you know, the technological analysis. All of these things are much more uh, important. But so the you know to the Proud Boys example, uh, you know, it, it does make you think about, you know, where are these pipelines and funnels heading and and yeah. whatever. Um, and uh, there is, you know, in the case of the left, there's not really like the clear organization that you would want to join. You know, I think we have sympathies, but maybe there's not an ideal organization at the moment that isn't dominated by, um, you know, middle class graphic designers in the case of the meetings that I've been to. <laughs> Sorry to shit on them. Mm. <laughs> They're great graphic designers, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, that just doesn't, it doesn't represent, uh, the, the kind of class perspective. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, um, I, I like to challenge these things. Um, I, I think in a, a kind of diagrammatic way where, you know, what is a, what is the political organization? It's a list of names and contact info for people. Um, so I've been kind of cataloging over the last few years, you know, how influencers are shaping political calls to action and also mobilizing their following. Um, there's a, a Twitch streamer by the name of Destiny who uh, mobilized his following to Canvas during the... I, I'm not endorsing Destiny, but <laughs> he just happens to be the only person who's done it. So yeah. I, I, you know what? I had a feeling you were not. I just, oh, God. I've just, said a few just for clarity, yeah. about that cat on, on the air. No, he's uh, he, he is not someone I would ever take political advice from, but um, it's historically significant in that um, he mobilized his followers to canvas during the Georgia Senate runoffs. Um, and, and they on certain weekends had more, uh, you know, feet on the ground, more people knocking doors than the actual Democratic Party. So um, that to me represents you know, one material clear example, I think what you mentioned before, also the obvious, uh, you know, um, populist fundraising dynamics, which would, uh, you know, explain Bernie's unprecedented fundraising abilities of small dollar donors through the reach of the Internet. Also for for Trump, I mean, a much higher dollar amount, but also populist dynamics at work, AOC as well. Um, you know, I've, I've written this before, but I think all of those things are great, but I just I don't see any way that that necessarily works for the left and can't be, you know, replicated very easily by, um, you know, liberals or conservatives or whoever, you know, these are basically the digital equivalent of telephones. So, um, yeah, I'm interested in 
in, in theorizing a way in which you can effectively use social media uh, for political education, meaning having certain content creators or, or you know, large audiences at the top that then become progressively refined over time. And I want there to be a political organization at the bottom of it that is, you know, um, mobilized, is, you know, organized alongside trade unions and um, does like the the actual work. But that that doesn't exist right now. So we're in the we're in the case of like. Um, I want to push this as an issue and I want people to take it seriously because the right is taking it very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. They are extremely well capitalized. There are a lot of uh, people making this stuff, a lot of people pouring money into it and actively recruiting towards, you know, whatever kind of disorganized, stochastic uh, uh, you know, riots and violence and, you know, gang uh, shit that they get up to, you know, um, it's much easier for them. There's a structural asymmetry. Uh, it's much harder for the left, but um, I see this as being basically like this is the new terrain, and um, we got to figure out a way to use it. You know, uh, YouTube can substantially change, uh, the internet can substantially change, but um, how many people? You wrote an article about MAGA communism a while mm -hmm. ago that I very mm -hmm. much enjoyed. <laughs> how many people are 13 years old and are shit posting about MAGA communism that when they're 25 years old? And they're just in a job and it's not memes anymore. And it just sucks because they're having to pee in the bucket at the Amazon warehouse. Um, how many of those people who are 13 year old MAGA communists are going to have moved somewhere else in those all those years and gotten politically educated and maybe have very different ideas? You know, so I want to think about strategic places to intercept ideas where people are receptive to new narratives you know, um, like Douglas Lane making videos about Jordan Peterson and, you know, hijacking those audiences whose belief systems are in motion. And I think that's uh, that's something that we we have to think about. So that's kind of been my project for the last few years. I come from a very unusual background in the art world, but um, I just don't know who else is, who else is going to do little it. Bit, so. Hey, the little <laughs> bit that I've seen, because I, I, you know, I'm going to fall down to Joshua uh, Citarella rabbit hole. And I, I've seen some of the art and I'm, I'm digging it. And uh, so I'm excited for your your showing in Berlin. Shout out to you. For that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, hope you document it. I'm sure you will as a good uh, quote unquote content creator. Let's stop calling <laughs> ourselves content creators. I'm a show host. I don't make just generic bullshit. So I like that better. Yeah. Um. Please, guys, sign up for Josh's Substack. Again, there's a link in the description wherever you're watching the show to the Substack, which I believe has links to all your other uh, your podcasts and everything else. Yeah, yeah, you'll find. Uh, uh, thanks for the plug. Yeah, you can find. Um, I think pretty much everything I've wrote is available or written is available uh, on Substack, and um, uh, very little of it right now is behind the paywall. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's. Uh, I've done podcasts, the uh, lecture I uploaded to YouTube, which is so funny to me that you you found it through a recommendation because um, <laughs> we have some kind of network connections between different Dude, uh, I people. know. I, I'm, I saw it and it didn't it, I, I, I'm not trying to be funny either. I think it had just launched that morning because it only had like 100 views or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> and I'm watching it. I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, what? I'll say this on air before we go. I hit up Sean from the antifada because i'm watching your thing and you said you did some shit with andy yeah yeah so he wrote like, a great book yeah so i'm like 
Sean, who the fuck is this Josh Italian name guy? And he goes, Jason, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I said, sir, there's a guy. He's in New York, I think. He's got some Italian name. You know him. He goes, I don't know him. He knows Andy. Let me fucking ask Andy, goddammit. <laughs> I, like, I got to get this guy on the show. And I couldn't even wait for Sean to get back to me. I've you know, found you and then we we exchanged pleasantries and, and now we're able to do this. So um, also, guys, go back and watch his presentation. It's it, I made him say a lot of it on this show, but uh, it is definitely worth the watch. And in the champagne room, I can ask Josh why he believes that music is dead. Because <laughs> he said that in the presentation, and I was like, that's the one thing I would have stood up in that presentation and yelled mm. about. Mm. Because my second, my follow up to I'm a Teenage Anarchist is all about why I believe that you said music is dead mm. and mm. why the internet now. And these subcultures are where "quote unquote" countercultural figures are going to to be radical, right. opposed to picking right. up a guitar or a microphone and and yelling your disdain at the system. Yeah, the um, I talked to uh, uh, Amber Frost on the podcast uh, last month, and she said she used this example of the guitar and the amp, which was that you know, if you were playing music in the the 1970s um the wage floor was su sufficiently high enough and the rent was cheap enough that you could afford to you know uh, start a band or and um and she said you know that's the reason why podcasting got big now is because it's low overhead right that's literally oh the, in, the entry the yeah. entry into it was look you can't give this answer now for free we're going to be douchebags and put <laughs> again show host right but thank you guys for watching. Thank you guys for hanging out with me and Josh. We went over by 10 minutes. You guys got a little bit of free champagne. There is a link already up in the description to the champagne room. Um, if you want to join us, there's one easy way. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can make sure that we can continue to do this fun and engaging show. If you are an audio listener on Apple, which according to the metrics say 45% of you people, and by you people, I mean you people are. And if you subscribe on Apple, bam, you get access to the champagne room. You get access to the shenanigans. You can hear all the insane call-ins. And then you'll be able to, hey, Jay, I want to call in myself. I'm an Apple subscriber, and I want to tell you to fuck off. <laughs> That's ultimately what everybody wants. Someone tell you to fuck off. Someone says Jason means Latinos. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucked up. Okay. Josh, you're going to join us for a couple minutes in the champagne room. I yeah, need yeah, I'm excited for it. Yeah, and uh, thanks for having me on. This is just a, a, a blast, and I'm a fan of the show, and it's, uh, yeah, great to chat. Well, now we have to exchange. Whenever you want to do a show, I would love to come on and shoot the shit with you. And Yeah, that would be that, that would be great. Yeah, yeah, I would love to do that. Um, Someone says, a.k.a. Filipinos. Yes, yes, <laughs> because all of my beige children 
and their Asian moms that hate me so much. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you guys. And I will see you guys in the champagne room. We are out.